We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans. And uh, we are, as I mentioned last week, on the home stretch. We're coming around the final bend here and uh, making a run at the finish line. And we really have today's text and then one more after that. And uh, hard to believe that uh, this journey will be completed, but uh, hopefully we'll see it as just getting started. Uh, what a great, great study this has been. But this morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 through 20 in Romans chapter 16. If you're visiting with us, uh, that's where we're at, Romans chapter 16. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 17 and uh, be reading the, the four verses there that follow. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Paul writes, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you right now as the author of this text, as Paul was dictating this to his amanuensis Tertius, as we learned last week, he wrote under uh, your direction. And uh, your spirit has also preserved this text for us, that we would have a copy of your word to study this morning, and we need your Holy Spirit's help as well to illuminate our minds to understand what Paul said here and how this applies to our lives. God, thank you for the blessing this passage has been for me to study this week, and I pray that it would be a blessing uh, to these dear folks this morning as we go through it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, the Bible likens God's people to sheep, and Jesus, along with all those he has called and raised up to tend his flock, are likened to shepherds. Sheep are vulnerable, particularly to predators, because they're basically defenseless animals, and they have no means of protecting themselves. And so one of the marks of a good shepherd is he protects the sheep against their natural enemies, one of those being wolves. It's no wonder that the Bible likens false teachers to wolves, because false teachers resemble the danger that wolves pose to a flock of unwary sheep. And throughout the, the New Testament, there are repeated warnings and, and real-life examples of how the church would be infiltrated by false teachers who would try to deceive believers and lead them astray from the truth. Let me read for you a few of these passages, starting with Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He said, "'Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said this, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, 
even the elect. And then Luke records Paul's words in Acts chapter 20 in his final uh, interchange with the, the elders from the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he said this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And then we know that Paul had left Timothy in the church in Ephesus after uh, these false teachers had wreaked havoc in the church, and Timothy was to put uh, the church, help the church get back on track. And so Paul said a lot about false teachers in his letters to Timothy and also to Titus. First Timothy chapter four, verse one, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, talking about the role of an elder in the church, that they are to uh, be able to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Why? For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And then one last reference, and this is Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I think you'd agree with me that we are living in the times that Jesus and Paul and Peter predicted. We live in an age where the quantity and the variety of false teachers and false teaching within the church is astounding. We're living in a generation that is exposed to more religious ideas than any other generation in the history of the world. We're constantly inundated with an enormous amount of spiritual information and instruction via uh, Christian television and radio and books and magazines and uh, videos and podcasts and blog posts and conferences and seminars, all claiming to be teaching truths from the Bible. And yet, sadly, the minds and hearts of countless Christians are being muddled and misled by a plethora of ideas and beliefs and opinions that don't, they don't even realize are unbiblical. And because of a lack of discernment, they're easy prey for false teachers who intentionally disguise error to look like truth. And so consequently, their lives are filled with turmoil and confusion, and as I mentioned a few weeks ago, 
Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, they're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Paul had seen it too often. All too often, undiscerning believers being led astray by unbelieving deceivers. Undiscerning believers being led astray by unbelieving deceivers. I can't take credit for that. That's Chuck Swindoll. That's good stuff. And that's why Paul so often included strong warnings against false teachers in his letters. And he inserted one of those, uh, one of his signature warnings here at the end of his letter uh, to the churches uh, in Rome. And I, thought it, I found it interesting that a number of commentators noted how sudden and unexpected and misplaced um, this particular warning seemed to be. Why here? Why now? And some even suggested that uh, since these verses seem so out of place, that they may have been added at some later time by someone other than Paul which obviously is, a never, is never a good conclusion when you start cutting and pasting parts of the scriptures and saying this really didn't go here and maybe it came over from here and this is here and well, who's to say who's right and who's wrong and you can do, you know, play, play fast and loose with scripture. I want to suggest to you as we start this morning another way to see what might appear like some random rant against false teachers. First of all, in the previous verse, Paul included greetings from all the churches he had planted and ministered to in Achaia, Macedonia, and Asia Minor. Remember, he said this, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And with that one sentence or phrase, uh, I'm sure his mind was flooded with memories of all the churches that he had planted and had a chance to minister to all across Achaia, Macedonia, Asia Minor. And it may have been the mention of other churches that brought to mind all the problems that false teachers had caused in so many other churches, and he knew it would only be a matter of time before false teachers would worm their way into the churches in Rome. It's not clear uh, if Paul had a specific group of false teachers in mind here, but false teachers in general dogged him everywhere he went and followed him around, stirring up trouble in the churches that he had planted by contradicting what he had taught and confusing young believers. Galatians is a great example of this. Galatians chapter one, verse six. Paul says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, he says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So obviously some false teachers had come in after Paul and had messed up that church and messed up the minds and the hearts of those young believers. Second of all, this warning here 
is sandwiched between these two lists of names that we looked at last week, verses 1 through 16 and then verses 21 through 23, where Paul was expressing his appreciation and commending his beloved co-laborers in Christ. And as he was recalling the names of those who had selfishly worked alongside him, it would have been hard, I think, for him not to think about those who had selfishly worked against him to build their own kingdom rather than Christ's kingdom. In fact, if you remember in Philippians chapter 1, which, by the way, Paul wrote the letter, um, this letter to the to the believers in Philippi under, while he was under house arrest in Rome. So this is, this is after the fact. Paul wrote uh, this after the fact. Now he's in, in Rome, and this is what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Some, to be true, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my, prison, in my imprisonment. I mean, who does that? Who preaches with that evil motive? Well, it was already happening there in the, church, the churches of Rome. And and another thought here, thirdly, in this final chapter, we mentioned last week that Paul was actually modeling a theology of Christian friendship, namely how to love others well. And I think what we need to understand is love is not just appreciative, it's also protective. When you truly love someone, you want to protect them. And so he naturally transitions from commending his readers to cautioning his readers, And Paul knew that no believer in no church, no matter how mature, no matter how well-grounded they may be, is immune to the deceptive and divisive influence of false teachers. And so at the end of this epic epistle, he warned the believers in Rome to remain vigilant at all times for those who may seek to deceive or disrupt or divide them and undo all that he had just got done teaching them in this letter. So if you ask me, my opinion is it seems to fit perfectly here, does it not? There's lots of reasons why Paul uh, would have written what he wrote right here. Having said that, I want us just to see this morning as we look at these verses, six ways to avoid being duped by false teachers. That, that's the point of this passage. It's, 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 it's all about false teachers and how are we to interact with them How are we to protect ourselves from them? And so, six ways to avoid being duped by false teachers. The first way is to keep your eye out for false teachers. Very simple. Keep your eye out for false teachers. Notice verse 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Paul is urging them to to be watchful, to always have their guard up, to always be on the lookout for divisive people who intentionally or unwittingly hinder the work of the Lord. I found it interesting that word, therefore, keep your eye on. If you have a new international version, it just says to watch out for. The, The Greek word is scopane, from which we get, guess what word? Scope. 
And so when you look through a telescope or you look through a microscope, what are you doing? You use those tools, right, to, to zoom in on something to examine it more closely. And that's why I chose to title this sermon, Focusing In on False Teachers, because that's what Paul was urging his readers to do and us to do, to scrutinize false teachers carefully through the lens of Scripture. This is our microscope. This is our telescope. This is the lens that we're to look look, look at false teachers through. That's the example that we find in the book of Acts with the Bereans, the believers in Berea. Luke says that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Luke didn't condemn the Berean believers for being critical or judgmental or divisive. On the contrary, he commended them for wanting to make sure that what they are being taught by the Apostle Paul, by the way, was biblical, that it lined up with Scripture. They they weren't on, on some witch hunt. They didn't have some morbid preoccupation with finding fault with everyone and everything. They, they wanted to know the truth because they loved the truth. And so they checked to make sure that what, what Paul was saying matched up with the truth of God's Word. And again, I mentioned this a a few weeks ago when I preached that message on the discerning listener in preparation for the Truth and Love Conference that I had the privilege of being a part of. But I simply said this, anyone who teaches anything that is contrary to what the Bible teaches should be considered a false teacher. That's how you qualify. What what qualifies a person to be a false teacher? They they teach anything that is contrary to uh, what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul said there. He said, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. So for the believers in Rome, they were to compare what they heard with with what uh, they had already been taught by Christ and his apostles, Paul being one of them, and uh, that was the agreed upon standard in their day by which all other teaching was to be tested and judged. Paul mentioned uh, the, the maintaining the standard of sound words. First uh, Timothy chapter six, verse three, says it pretty clearly. First Timothy chapter six, verse three: If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, don't listen to him. So the apostles' teaching as it was referred to, right? Acts 2.42, what did the church do? They got together and they devoted themselves first and foremost to what? Whenever they got together. They, they prayed, they took communion, they had meals together, they fellowship together, but they always had time, what? The apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching first and foremost. And the apostles' teaching has been preserved for us in the New Testament, which is our standard. The standard which we use to evaluate everything we hear, everything that we read. And ironically, those who strive to be good Bereans, as you may have heard that expression before from Acts 17.11, we need to be a good Berean. Those that try to be a good Berean in our day and, 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 and point out error or expose uh, false teaching are often accused of heresy hunting. We're being unloving. Oh, that's unloving. That's critical. You're being so d- divisive. 
And you may have heard or may even share the sentiment, doctrine divides. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said that before, or at least thought that. Doctrine divides. We shouldn't get all into these doctrinal weeds, off into the weeds and these doctrinal issues because they just divide the church. And, you know, we just need to love each other and, and let bygones be bygones, agree to disagree, and, and just go on down the road together, one big happy family. In other words, we shouldn't let our doctrinal beliefs create any divisions between us. We should lay aside our differences and unite around the things we all agree on. This is what uh, the ecumenical movement is all about, where, where ecumenism is like all the church, doesn't matter what church you are, what denomination you are, Catholic church, Protestant church, Church of Christ, Bible church, you know, Baptist church, Methodist church, Lutheran church, let's all just come together and agree to disagree and, and uh, be one big happy family. But we have to remember that Jesus himself said that he came to divide. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and man's enemies will be the members of his household. Paul said that some divisions are necessary and you ready for this? Good. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. When you come together as a church, he's talking about coming together for communion. I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, sometimes it's good for a rift to happen because then you find out who's who and where they really stand on an issue. Or a doctrine. You say, well, that seems to contradict what Paul says here. You keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Well, I was wanting to make sure we had a balanced perspective of what Paul was saying here. Paul was referring here uh, in Romans, not necessarily to those who bring heresies into the church. That could apply here. But perhaps more Specifically, those who form some faction and try to gain a loyal following or they lay snares or they set traps or they, they, they build obstacles that trip others up or cause them to stumble. And we know that creating factions and causing divisions are listed among the deeds of the flesh in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. In other words, you don't want to be, you know, Involved in idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. I mean, that's not a list you want to have anything to do with, right? And I think you know this as well as I do, if you've been a part of, of, of the church for any number of years, that it's not uncommon for someone to just kind of suddenly show up at a church and they seem... So all in and very knowledgeable and they're likable, but they start pushing a, a particular belief or a personal conviction and they're critical of those who don't share that belief or that conviction and the next thing you know, they're pulling their followers away and they start another church down the road that is more biblical, right? It happens all the time. I'll never forget the first church that I pastored here in Texas, there was... Um, uh, a gentleman who came to the church 
and we hit it off right away and just a, a nice guy and, and uh, kind of a business professional and just kind of seemed to have his act together and uh, seemed to know the word really well and uh, so we became quick friends and uh, I still can remember it like it was yesterday, him sitting, he and his wife sitting in our membership class and uh, getting to know them and through that process and, and then to my shock, shortly after joining the church, he showed up in my office threatening a lawsuit against me and the other leaders because we had failed to uh, provide the congregation an opportunity to vote on an issue, to have a congregational meeting, and, and so they were going to sue, um, you know, because we had violated the bylaws in their opinion, and, and he was the ringleader. He was the one coming as their advocate and saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to sue. And I'm like, hey, just one question. Is 1 Corinthians 6 in your Bible? Because there's something in there about not suing one another as Christians, and, of course, at that point, I realized we weren't on the same page as much as I thought we were. So Paul said to keep your eye out for these kinds of people because they're, sadly, in a lot of churches. And the question is, how do you scope them out? How do you spot a false teacher or a potentially divisive person? Well, I think they're easily recognizable if you know God's word. And again, let me just remind you of, of those questions that I, I encourage you to ask yourself to identify whether or not someone's a false teacher. I gave these to you several weeks ago. Number one, is their teaching based on the word of God? Is it consistent with what the Bible says? Number two, does their teaching produce growth and godliness? Is it unifying and edifying to the body of Christ? Or is it divisive? Number three, do they humbly seek to honor God and help others? Or do you kind of get the sense they're, they're kind of about themselves and they've got some pride and they've got some self-seeking tendencies. They've got a personal agenda, in other words. And then lastly, do they explain the gospel message clearly and correctly? And again, that's typically what Satan loves to attack the most, because if he can mess up the gospel and confuse people about the gospel, then they can't get saved. And if they can't get saved, guess what? They're going to hell with him. And that's what he wants. And so make sure you ask yourself, do they have the gospel right? Is it clear? Is it correct? So the first way to avoid being duped by a false teacher is to keep your eye out for them. Know that they're out there. You need to be able to recognize them, but not only recognize them, you also have to reject them. Notice what he says at the end of verse 17. He says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. The way I've said it is steer clear of them. That's the second way to not be duped by a false teacher. Just steer clear of them altogether. That's what that, that's what that phrase means, to steer clear of someone, means to keep entirely away from them. Don't get anywhere near them. And this is a, a present command, a present imperative, as they call it in the Greek language, which means that we're to do this 
all the time. This is not just a one-time turning away. This is a keep on turning away. Keep on avoiding them. Stay away from them. Don't watch them. Don't listen to them. Don't buy their books. Don't read their blogs. Don't attend their church. Don't go to their conferences. Don't provide them even a platform to share what they believe so that you can engage them or dialogue with them. They need to be lovingly and graciously denounced as being outside the bounds of orthodoxy and perhaps even outside the fold of Christianity. Some of you may remember the several years ago, there was a well-known pastor who thought it'd be a good idea to have this thing called the elephant room, where we bring in um, other pastors and ministers who have different beliefs than we have on not secondary issues, like we're talking like primary issues like the Trinity. And, uh, and so they would bring a guy in, they would sit there and they would dialogue and, hey, tell us what you believe so that we can tell you what we believe. Well, guess what? There's a whole lot of people listening to heresy being communicated, and of course, it was the elephant in the room. That's the elephant room, get it? It's the elephant on the couch, the elephant in the room. Let's address these elephant issues in the church like the Trinity and like uh, these other things. Not so good of an idea. According to Paul, he says, turn away from these guys. Don't, Don't give them a platform. And... For us on a personal level, you've probably experienced this when you get the old knock on the door and they're standing there, you know, with their stuff, their literature, and what do they want to do? They want to engage you in a friendly discussion, don't they? They never come at it hard. They don't come with their guns blazing, right? Because they know you'll just slam the door in their face, right? If you're going to, hey, if you're going to come at me like that, we're done, right? But no, they're very nice and gracious and friendly. They want to engage you in a friendly discussion. Well, Paul says, no, don't engage them in friendly discussions. Turn away from them. Now, you don't have to be a jerk about it. Like I said, you don't have to slam the door in their face and come out with your shotgun and tell them to get off your property and that kind of stuff. But you can speak the truth to them in love, but not Listen to their false teaching because you may be unwittingly, unsuspectingly influenced by what they have to say. I think in light of the context, when he says turn away from them, he just got done telling people to greet one another how? With a holy kiss. So no kiss for you. I ain't kissing you. I'm not supposed to have anything to do with you. Uh, 2 John chapter, or verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. That, that applies to lots of cults that show up at your front door. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you, you fill in the blank there. They have a wrong view of Jesus Christ. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we've accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now notice, listen what he says. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds.
1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul said, I wrote to you not to associate with so-called brothers. If they're an immoral person, covetous, idolater, not even to eat with such a one. These are people that profess to be Christians that you know are not living like a Christian or believing like a Christian. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that we, he will be put to shame. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, avoid such men as these. He just got done describing the kind of men that are, will be in the world during the end days. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. In other words, that's why you don't let them in your household. Because they may captivate you, led on by various impulses, it says, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. God has rejected them, and so should we. Are we smarter than God? Should we be any different than God in the way, he, the way we treat false teachers? He's rejected them. Titus 3, verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-condemned. In other words, if you've got a troublemaker in the church that just keeps stirring up all sorts of conflict, you warn him a couple times, hey, quit it, knock it off. If he keeps doing it, you've got to say, hey, man, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here anymore. I mean, it's a sad day when it gets to that point, but that's what Jesus, or that's what Paul said to do. And sometimes I think Christians fail to do these things. They fail to part ways with false churches or false teachers who promote heretical beliefs or who live hypocritical lives because we're just too nice. Well, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be, I don't want them to not like me. So I'm just too nice to say no, to say, I don't want to hear it. One of my favorite commentators through this study of Romans has been Stuart Oliot over in uh, Britain. And he said this, it is true that Christian believers are to display boundless charity to all men and women, amen? It is also true that they're to be uncompromisingly intolerant of error. It's a balance we have to keep. So, keep your eye out for false teachers. Number two, steer, steer clear of them. Number three, catch on to their motives and tactics. Catch on to their motives and tactics. Now, to catch on to someone means that you see through their deception. You become aware of their devious ways. Right? We say, I'm on to you. I know what you're about. I see what you're doing there. And so in the case of false teachers, we need to catch on to what drives them, what motivates them, and, what, and, and, and how they operate. What are their tactics? Notice Paul, uh, Paul mentions their, their, their motives first here. He says, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And I don't think Paul was referring to their literal stomachs here. They may have been gluttonous, perhaps, but 
I think this was more a metaphor for self-indulgence. In other words, they were, they're not serving Christ, they're serving themselves. They're, rather than caring for the flock, they're caring, actually caring for themselves. Jude 12 says that about false teachers. They don't care about the flock, they care about themselves. They're, they're seeking to satisfy their appetite, their desire, their lust for power or for fame or for influence or for money or for sex, you fill in the blank. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says something similar here. He says, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. In other words, don't just like, oh, that guy eats a lot. Maybe he's a false teacher. That's not his point. It's like, what, what appetites, what desires, what lusts, what pleasures is he pursuing? And it's these kinds of self-serving attitudes that divide and destroy a church. When a pastor or somebody on the leadership team or somebody in the church has, a, has some kind of personal agenda, they want something. And so they go after it, even if they have to sin to get it. So that's, their, that's what drives them, but... Notice how they operate, and Paul describes their tactics. He says, and by their smooth, this is the middle of verse 18, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And so I think it's true, you could probably relate to this, that false teachers tend to have winsome personalities, don't they? I mean, typically, you don't listen to a guy who's like comes across like a jerk. Like, that guy's a jerk, man. Why would I listen to anything he has to say? They're, they're very, very winsome. They're, they're very personable. They're very persuasive. They're eloquent. They're compelling communicators. Wow, that guy's a good communicator, right? And they use flattery, Paul says, to put people at ease and to tell people what they want to hear to make them feel good about themselves so that they will like them and keep listening to them. And Paul said it very specifically in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. People won't want to hear sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And we'll turn away their ears from the truth and we'll turn aside to miss. In other words, they just surround themselves with people that are telling them what they want to hear. So they can leave church feeling good about themselves. But they're not what they appear, these false teachers. They're, they're hoodwinking you. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. These guys are dressing up. They're playing a part. It's a charade. Don't be naive. False teachers like the ultimate false teacher, Satan, disguise themselves in order to deceive unwary sheep. Oh, look, he looks like a sheep. Right? Or perhaps that verse where it says that the, the wolf that comes in sheep's clothing, 
Some make the case that that's actually in, 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 in shepherd's clothes. He, he dresses up not like another sheep. He dresses up like a shepherd. That's scary because he looks the part. Wow, he's, he's got the suit on. He's got the tie on. He's got the Bible. And he, he, so he must be a, a shepherd. And so we need to listen to this guy and what he has to say. And they pretend to speak for God and they, and, and, and they pretend to serve his people, but they're really just speaking their own opinions and their own thoughts and they're actually serving their own interests. And that's why what Paul said in the next verse is so important. Verse 19, he said, for the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. In other words, develop discernment. That's the fourth way to avoid being duped by false teachers is develop discernment. Paul wanted them to know he didn't consider them naive or unsuspecting. In fact, hey, I'm encouraged by you guys. I'm rejoicing at your obedient faith, which is well known. And it gives me confidence that, that, that you're going to follow my instruction and you're not going to be duped by false teachers. And so I think we could say it this way, that, that their obedience was not blind obedience. In other words, we should never be blindly loyal to a particular church or blindly follow a particular preacher. He says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Paul was exhorting the believers in Rome and us, by the way, to grow in discernment. You say, what's that? Well, discernment is simply the ability to tell the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error. Jesus basically said the same thing to his disciples when he sent them out. If you remember Matthew 10, 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I'd encourage you to study that passage a little, in a little more depth. You got, you got sheep, you got wolves, you got serpents, and you got doves. There's a lot of animals going on there. But they're all coming together to talk about being discerning. Paul gave a similar exhortation to the believers in Corinth in regards to speaking in tongues. He said this, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. And then maybe my favorite is the writer of Hebrews who confronted his readers for their lack of discernment and he challenged them to develop discernment, which is the mark of a mature Christian. Turn with me over there for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. This is such a great little section. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says, or I said Paul, give it away. Who do I think wrote Hebrews? But we don't know for sure. Whoever the guy was said this, concerning him who's him, Melchizedek, which was an Old Testament a, a, a priest. He was a priest in the Old, Te- Old Testament who was a picture of Christ, the great high priest. And he's like, concerning Melchizedek, where this is, Melchizedek was like a pregnant character, if you will, not literally pregnant, but just there's a lot going on there, a lot of foreshadowing. I mean, there's so much I wanted to teach you about Melchizedek and how he pointed to Christ, who is a much better high priest. Um, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be 
teachers who have need again, but in other words, you, you, you should have been teaching this stuff, but instead you need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need to go back to the ABCs here, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. By the way, milk is good. The Bible talks about craving the pure milk of the word, but typically who drinks milk, especially from bottles? Babies, and that's a good thing, but if you've got your teenager you know, on your lap rocking them to sleep with a bottle, that's not a good thing. And, and that's what Paul's saying, or Paul's saying, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, hey, that's not a good thing. You, you, you need milk. You, you should be, you know, I can't feed you solid food. Man, I got this prime rib I want to throw down and, 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 and eat with you and talk with you about this, these deep theological truths, and you can't handle it. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the words of righteousness, for he is an infant. But then I love this, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So number one principle about developing discernment, growing in discernment, is it takes a while. It's not something you can snap your fingers and say, oh, I'm discerning now. It, it takes years of practice, years of studying God's word and examining everything you hear and read and experience and, 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 and line it up with the scriptures. There's lots of passages in the Bible that, that command us to be discerning. I think the clearest one is in 1 Thessalonians 5. Turn over there quickly with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And Paul is speaking to the church in, in Thessalonica here. And he gives a very straightforward explanation of what discernment is. What does it look like practically? And he gives three commands here that I think are all part of what it means to be discerning or to exercise discernment. This is 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21. He says, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. So there you go, three commands. Examine, hold fast, and abstain. So in order to be a discerning person, you need to be able to do these three things. And so with the word of God as our gauge and the spirit of God as our guide, we need to train ourselves to, to examine everything that we hear and determine whether it's true or false so we can embrace what is true and we can reject what is false. I find it interesting that Paul already said this in a simpler phrase than that in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Remember this. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's a, that's a basic definition of, of discernment. Abhor what is evil and, and cling to what is good. So after challenging the believers here to grow in our ability to discern between good and evil, Paul reassured his readers, reassures us that in the end, good will ultimately triumph over evil. Notice number five, the fifth way to avoid being duped by a false teacher is bear in mind who is behind the false teaching. Bear in mind who is behind the false teaching. Notice verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush who? 
Satan, oh, this passage is really not about false teachers as it is about ultimately who? Who's behind the false teachers? Satan. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So bear in mind who's behind false teaching. Paul loved this phrase, the God of peace. It was one of his favorite ways to refer to God. He, he uses it in Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, um, earlier in this uh, book of Romans in chapter 15. What, is, what, is this, what does it mean that God is the God of peace? Well, because he's the God of peace, he desires to preserve the peace and harmony that he established between the members of the body of Christ and protect the unity of the church against those who want to divide it. So just so you know, false teachers are going against, going up against the God of peace. The guys who are trying to divide the church are really at war with God, who's trying to keep the peace, preserve the peace. And so Paul made it clear that Satan is the one who's ultimately behind those who teach error and seek to divide the church. In, in other words, false teachers and divisive people are simply tools in the hands of Satan that he's using to sow discord in an attempt, a futile attempt, to tear down and destroy the work of God. And so it's no wonder that God wants to crush Satan, literally to shatter or break something into pieces. Now hopefully if you know your Bibles when you read that verse, the God of, Satan, God of peace excuse me, will soon crush Satan under your feet, there's a, one verse in the Old Testament that comes to mind. What is it? Genesis 3.15. I heard somebody say that. Genesis 3.15. And this was part of the curse that God laid out for Satan after he had deceived Eve and Adam, and they ate of the fruit, they disobeyed the Lord, and this is what he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Literally, you'll bruise his heel, this enmity, this person, which the seed, between your seed and her seed, that's a reference to the Messiah. This is the, this is the first reference first prophecy in the Bible about the death of Jesus on the cross. And Satan thought that he had defeated Jesus when he died on the cross, but Jesus actually dealt a death blow to both Satan and sin. And there's just a lot of parallels here. Genesis 3.15 helps us understand, I think, what Paul was saying here. Here's um, Satan, the original false teacher, in his smooth speech, and he wormed his way in, if you will, to, to Eve's mind and heart and the world was cast into sin, plunged into sin because of his smooth speech, his deception. He, he came in the form of a serpent, a beautiful creature, came in disguise, if you will. But at the end of the day, there was one coming, a descendant of the woman, Jesus Christ, who would defeat Satan, would crush his head. And even though he's already been defeated, he was defeated at the cross, he's yet to concede defeat. And so he continues to thrash about like a snake when you cut his head off. You ever done that? That is the most nastiest thing I've ever seen in my life. 
just when you thought you won, right? Whack with the machete or the shovel, boom. And that sucker's still moving. You're like, whoa, what is going on here? That is not normal. But that's what snakes do, right? I remember reading a story years ago about a missionary couple who was stationed in the jungle and they walked into their little hut and there was a, a huge snake that had gone in there. I don't know if it was a, a python, an anaconda, who knows what it was, it was a huge snake. And so they ran out and they got one of the, one of the tribesmen to come in with his machete and, and uh, you know, they heard some um, you know, scuffle in the house and, and uh, all of a sudden he comes out and he says, okay, it's all taken care of, um, the snake's dead, but he's gonna mess up your house a little bit for a little while. And, and sure enough, I mean, there was all this racket in the house where that snake was just flailing around destroying everything he could destroy. And that's a lot like Satan, isn't it? He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. And in the meantime, he's going to do some damage. But we need to never forget that he's a goner. And I think that was Paul's point here, is that even though Satan is angrily thrashing around and wreaking havoc in the world and trying to do his worst in the church... And he will continue to do so until Jesus returns. But knowing that we're warring against a defeated foe should reassure us. It should embolden us as we battle against error and evil, knowing that the final victory belongs to us. And so since Satan has already lost the war, we don't need to fear him or his minions. I love that hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, for still our ancient foe, Doth seek to work us woe, talking about Satan. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's what Paul was saying here. Hey, Satan's a goner. It's only a matter of time before he gets crushed. Not under my feet, under your feet. The feet of the church. And then finally, none of this would be possible were not for the grace of God. Last way to avoid being duped by false teachers is to rely upon the grace of God in Christ. Notice verse 20. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Which was Paul's standard Benediction, he ended all 13 of his letters here in the New Testament with these words, mentioning God's grace. Paul knew that he was who he was and that he had done all that he had done solely because of the grace of God in his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul knew. It wasn't, a, it wasn't him. He couldn't take credit for any of this. He couldn't have done any of this were it not for the grace of God. He was completely dependent on God's grace, and guess what? So are we. And we desperately need God's grace in order to remain vigilant and not be deceived and led astray by false teachers it's only by the grace of God that we don't get led astray because they're everywhere, especially in our day and age. 
And it's, and, it's, and it's God's grace that enables us to develop and to grow in discernment. And I was thinking just as I was wrapping up my study of this, in light of all the relentless assaults on the church, and in spite of all the countless heresies that have infiltrated the church over the centuries, the fact that we're still sitting here today, and the church is still going strong, that is powerful evidence of the grace of God. Amen? We're here because of God's grace. And so let's rely upon his grace to live out the truths in this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this helpful word, this, these few verses that just are so timely, so relevant uh, in, the, in, the, in the age in which we live. Uh, we do desperately need your grace now to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. And so, Lord, as we think about these truths, as we talk about them perhaps over lunch or in our grow groups this week, Lord, as we dialogue, that you would help us um, implement these things and uh, that we would see many evidences of your grace in, in, in protecting us from false teaching and false teachers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.